I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our daily podcast edition of the program. I'm honored to welcome Jose Luis Jimenez to our broadcast today. He is professor at the University of Colorado. Welcome, professor. Thank you for having me. Uh, professor, what can you tell us at this point about the, the chemistry um, behind COVID and how it may or may not spread in the air? Uh, well, uh, um, more than the chemistry is just about the, the transmission of uh, COVID-19 through aerosols. So we've been investigating this and collaborating with many other scientists uh, for, for multiple months now. Um, my conclusion is that COVID-19 is primarily transmitted through aerosols. It can also be transmitted through fomites through surfaces and through droplets, but probably only uh, for coughing and sneezing. So coughing and sneezing, when, when samples of coughs or, or sneeze um, particles are on surfaces, you can contract the virus that way. But what about just speaking? Can, can asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic people who are just speaking um, to someone wearing a mask or not wearing a mask potentially spread it? Yes, and in fact, we think what you just described is a major component of the spread of the, of the disease because all these either pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic or people who have very, very little symptoms um, are talking to others. And, and we know that when people talk, they release what we call respiratory particles, which are little bits of your saliva or the respiratory fluid, which is the, the liquid that lines your lungs and your trachea. And if someone is infected, those little particles contain some virus. Uh, those particles, bits of material can be big. Those are the droplets fall to the ground in, in three to six feet, or they can be smaller. And then those are the ones we call aerosols and they kind of stay floating in the room for minutes to hours. And then if a person, a susceptible person breathes them in, they can land inside their lungs or inside their nose and infection can be initiated that way. Professor Jimenez, is it unusual that a virus can spread and be very contagious um, pre-symptomatically or asymptomatically through speech? Um, <clears throat> I don't think it's unprecedented, but um, it is not very well known because I think the, the transmission of diseases through aerosols has been resisted for more than a century. So we only have clear information on some diseases that basically it was undeniable that they transmitted through aerosols like measles or chickenpox or tuberculosis. Um, and then for other diseases that probably are actually similar to COVID-19 and are mostly transmitted through aerosols or have a substantial fraction through aerosols like SARS and MERS, um, you know, that, that has been studied less. And, and so, as we are assessing the um, aerial transmission, um, how do you suggest we, as citizens, respond to the science that we know so far? Um, I mean, I think it, it is clear what, what we should do. And the, the analogy that we use is uh, cigarette smoke or, or vaping smoke for the younger people. And uh, if you, we are all used to see how that disperses. 
And what you have to imagine is not this smoke per se, but, but the idea of the smoke is that it shows us how the same respiratory particles that also come out of us, but they're much fewer, so they're not visible, but that gives us an idea how that disperses and accumulates. So you have to imagine that the people you encounter are all smoking and you don't wanna breathe a lot of their smoke. A little bit, a whiff here and there is, is not a problem, but you don't wanna be in a room with low ventilation with a, with a smoker uh, for a long time, or you don't wanna be talking to them in close proximity for a long time. So basically what we have to do is to avoid being in close proximity with others, keep the social distance, and then we need to avoid or reduce as much as possible being indoors, especially if it's crowded, especially if there is low ventilation, especially if people are talking, and even more if they're shouting or singing, or if people are not wearing masks. So basically, a lot of the studies of the outbreaks find that, that those are the conditions that, that lead to, to propagation of the disease to a lot of people, so we have to avoid those things. And, but of course, we have to still go to, to indoor locations, we have to go to, to work or the supermarket or school, so then really uh, wearing masks at all times is, is very important. And there is a few details about masks. For, for droplets, you know, if some projectile is coming at you, just having something that covers your, your nose and your mouth is fine. But for aerosols, which you breathe in, the, the mask needs to be tight around your face. And that's important. You see a lot of people with masks, but you could put a finger between their mask and their face. And that's a problem because the air is going to come in and out that way. So the mask needs to be well fit. Then, because we know that people, when they talk, they produce 10 times more respiratory particles that people are just breathing. The most important person that needs to wear the mask is whoever is talking. Okay? And we see even Anthony Fauci goes to Congress and he removes his mask to speak. So I hope he stops doing that and, and really Whoever is talking needs to set an example, unless it is outdoors, if it's outdoors, it's okay, but otherwise they need to keep their, their mask um, for speaking. Uh, we know that wearing a mask is, is annoying, it's, it's harder to understand people when talking, but those are, you know, those are things that you just have to, to put up with to control the pandemic. How effective do you think the masks will be outdoors and indoors, um, and, and, and does it, I, I suppose that the answer is somewhat dependent upon whether someone is shouting or singing or whether they're speaking. Um, well, I think the efficiency of the mask will be similar. I mean, they, the more, in a way you can say, okay, for a certain mask, maybe 30% of the particles are escaping. If you are talking <clears throat> or you are singing or shouting, you're producing more and more particles. So 30% of a larger number will be more particles escaping. But in terms of the the fraction of particles that mask capture, I think that will be pretty constant. And I think they are very effective, especially if they're worn well, if, if they're tight, and if, um, you know, they're masks of, of good quality, they don't, you know, there is cloth masks that I have seen that, that fit very well to the face. Those uh, work very well. Uh, something else that I, I forgot to say earlier, the, the other thing that we can do, besides wearing masks at all times indoors, and also outdoors if we're close to others, the other thing that we have to do is pay attention to ventilation. So in indoor spaces where we have to spend time with others, we have to ventilate, meaning uh, we have to replace the indoor air with outdoor air. And because outdoor air in general is not gonna have the virus, so that allows us to dilute the virus that's indoors. In some places that may take the, the form of opening the windows, in other places there are ventilation systems that one can tweak to increase the fraction of outdoor air 
and also through filtration. So um, ventilation systems, um, the ones that have ducts, like the forced air systems, have filters, and those filters can be increased in quality to what we call MERV 13 in most cases, so that then as the air is filtered, a lot of the virus will stay in the filter and won't come back into the space. And also, there are solutions. There is portable HEPA filters, um, which is basically a box that has a fan, takes air from the room, passes the air through a filter, all the virus will stay on the filter, and then puts the cleaner back into the room. And um, those were great. The only problem is they're expensive. So I just bought one for my mom in Spain, and it was $300 or something. Uh, but, but the good news is that there is basically something very similar that you can make with a box fan and, um, and, and, and a filter, and that will cost 30 or $40. So I think there is, there is no reason, and they work very well. They have been tested and they work very well. So there is no reason for not basically doing this on a massive scale in all the schools and in all the places where people are going to be together um, in, the, in the future. So you're saying that from the individual perspective, masks, but then when we talk about households or institutions that, that house m more than a single family or a single person, um, the air quality and the atmospheric conditions are going to depend on enhancing them for the protection against COVID is going to depend on interventions. Um, so you're describing sets of interventions for people and for companies um, that may have large factories or uh, that are still in operation, even though the majority of, of uh, workers are social distancing, um, but there are certain enterprises that, that require um, folks to gather. So when it comes to um, controlling the atmospheric conditions in your home, you, you either, in the case of air conditioning or filtration, you're, you're, you likely have your own unit in, in a room or in your house, or if you are in an apartment building, you may have central air. What are the kinds of interventions that need to be made depending upon the, those circumstances of individual air conditioning units and, and, uh, and, and then centralized uh, air conditioning? Well, if you have a um, central, like what's called forced air in your house, then something that you should do is install a higher quality filter, like one MERV 13, which is normally a little higher quality than, than what people normally use, but they are not, not more expensive. If you, you live with others, so for example, if you live with a healthcare worker or someone who may be exposed to the virus, then it would be a good idea to take some of these portable air cleaners or, um, or the cheap version that I mentioned with a fan and a filter and install them around the house. That would be a way to remove virus from the air should there be any, should someone be infected and not know. Uh, the same, I mean, the same applies to apartment buildings. And um, the, the one thing that can be tricky, and I don't think it's very common, but if, if there were apartment units in which the air is recirculated from one unit to other units, that would be a concern in that, you know, someone could be sick in one unit and transfer the, the air to the other units. But I, I, I don't know that that's common in, in the U.S. in particular. And in the case of individual air conditioning units that may, may hang outside of your window, um, is there risk that you um, can assess from air that's coming out from, from the street or, or from, you know, the, the floor of your 
apartment, um, is, is that air at risk or, or is that less likely to be a risk? Those units, like the window units or, or the, these, the ones that are called split units that are mounted on the wall, yeah. don't yeah. exchange air with the outside. So basically, they, there is a refrigerant, uh, which is a, a liquid uh, that, that exchanges the heat with the outside, but air doesn't come in, in or out. So there are, uh, those units move, cool and move the air in the room, but they are not a concern per se in terms of letting in um, the virus. Uh, one thing I should say to make very clear is that when we say that this goes to aerosols, sometimes the opponents say, well, but this is not like missiles. And that's something we totally agree with. This is, this is much, much less contagious than missiles. And it's not something, something that you see with missiles is someone may be in a room and then they leave. And then someone comes into the room three hours later and are there for a while and they get sick because it was so contagious that they left some aerosols there floating around and that was enough to infect someone a long time later. We haven't seen anything like that with COVID-19. You need to help it along. You need to be in the same aerospace with someone for a significant amount of time and with low ventilation for contagion to happen, right? So then something like, um, oh, there is someone you pass in the street momentarily, or there is uh, someone on the street, uh, can air come in, um, you know, through, through the window? And you know, so I, I don't think that's, um, that's a significant concern. There is some scientific reporting to date that there is a certain number of minutes, it may not be hours. We're not clear yet what the time capsule is, though. You know, if someone were to cough in an elevator uh, or sneeze in an elevator, uh, even if they were masked and the virus escapes um, and that is in the air, we don't really know yet how long it will live in the air, if it's 30 minutes, if it's an hour, especially those kinds of insulated spaces, right? We, do, we, do we not know that yet? Uh, well, I mean, there is, there is two aspects to what you said. One, once the virus is released into the air, we know that it will be infective for, for an hour or, or something of that order. There are several studies and they all, uh, they all say something like that. Now in an elevator, I have a colleague, um, that has studied that in more detail. There is actually a lot of ventilation as the, uh, as the elevator comes up and down in most elevators. So what we think is the concern is mostly if you're sharing the elevator for a long time, if this is a tall building, with someone who's infected, right? But um, if someone has been in the elevator and then they have left and now you come in, um, I mean, it's not impossible, but that seems unlikely. When you, you've been studying sort of potential bioweapons and their effect in atmospheric conditions, um, where would you say the, the threat of COVID is relative to other either uh, pathogens that can be contagious in the air or uh, bioweapons that, that could be uh, also spread that way? How does COVID compare to, to other things that you've studied? Well, I, I actually have not studied bioweapons. I study uh, air pollution for the most part. But probably the, the most relevant answer is, is the comparison to, to other respiratory diseases. So we know, for example, that measles and chickenpox are much, much more contagious than COVID. COVID is less contagious through the air, and you need to be basically close to someone for a sustained period of time. The CDC says 15 minutes of being close to someone, talking to someone, is typically what they see. 
as a summary of the studies or for a longer time in a room you know a lot of them uh, a lot of the case studies like we've studied the, the choir case and people spent a couple of hours together in a room singing you know and then there was a lot of um, a lot of transmission or in the restaurant case it was also something like uh, almost an hour right? so, so it's something of that type then other viruses that also are transmitted through the air like influenza uh, the flu seems to be maybe a little less contagious than COVID uh, through the air so you, so you have a range uh, of diseases and this is on the this is probably on the less contagious side or, or it's in the less contagious side at least most of the time um, there is a lot of debate whether there are some super spreader people that maybe for whom it is really almost like measles, but, but we don't really know. It's speculative and, and we are debating with other scientists what evidence there is. But in general, for most people who are infected, it's much, much less contagious than something like measles. How would you say the condition of air pollution in various countries has affected, if, if it has at all, their pandemic responses and what the post-COVID reality may be. So, you know, given that that's your area of expertise, it, it, the condition of pollution in the United States, for example, how has that impacted the way we should understand COVID? Well, there, there has been a lot of work and a lot of hypotheses put forward on this topic. Um, you know, I haven't seen uh, something really convincing. I mean, I think there were some studies that were saying, okay, the most polluted places we're showing faster propagation of COVID, but I think that's because the most polluted places are metropolitan areas where people travel more and that's why the disease got there earlier. And I haven't seen convincing evidence that, that that's not the case. So then um, it, in my mind, what is possible is that, you know, we know that people who live in more polluted regions have some, some damage to their lungs and another, other health damage that's chronic you know, could that have predisposed people to be infected more easily or if they're infected to have a more severe disease? I think it's an interesting hypothesis. I, I have not seen a study that convinces me of that, although I've, I've been more focused on transmission than, than on following that particular area. That's, that's plausible, but I, I, my impression is that pollution is, is secondary. It's an important problem on its own, but, but it's a secondary issue with respect to COVID. It's a secondary issue with respect to both transmission, the frequency of transmission, um, and how people are impacted that live in polluted areas. So um, whether or not you are more susceptible to COVID um, because your lungs have been polluted or because your air has been polluted is, is, not, is not known at this juncture. But what about what COVID in this, in this societal tectonic shift um, is going to mean for air pollution in general? What, do you think that there will be some either constructive or destructive effect of the pandemic on the condition of pollution in, in the United States and elsewhere? That's a very good question. I think, and I think there is reasons uh, to imagine both possibilities. Um, I think one, one thing is that people have seen the effect of the lockdowns in air quality and how clean the air can be almost everywhere if, if we if humans stop polluting. So I think that has probably provided more motivation for pollution control for societies. Now, how, how that is translated into action by policymakers in the future uh, remains to be seen. Then there have been some encouraging developments that uh, due to the lower demand of energy and the increase in the 
uh, how cheap renewable energy is that there has been a replacement, an accelerated replacement of all pollutant technologies like burning coal with uh, clean technologies like solar and wind. So that's also encouraging and that's kind of like a permanent shift where we're never gonna build coal plants again. We just need to get rid of the ones we have. Um, then there is one, one last thing is that uh, so those are positive developments, but then there is one negative one, like during the 2008 and later years financial crisis, um, you know, that basically delayed a lot of pollution controls because basically the emphasis was on recovering the economy and pollution control was viewed as something that would cost money and would slow that. So there is also, you know, with the economic crisis we're in and that is going to continue for some years, there's also the possibility um, that there would be a, actually a delay on on the control of pollution, but I don't know. It depends how societies, how these factors play out in societies in the, in the next couple of years. Um, Professor, for those of us who have been heavily quarantined in major metropolises that have been under lockdown, or who are just taking conservative measures to protect ourselves and our families, um, can you give us some insight into um, the, the short and, and medium and long-term effect of, of being indoors, um, how you can improve your air quality indoors, um, and to what extent you, know, you can um, still have the health benefits of being outdoors. Of course, vitamin D is the first thing that comes to mind uh, on a very simplistic level, but what what would you say to folks who are concerned uh, about the air quality in their you know respective homes? Um, I would say that it is a good thing to be concerned um, because there are reasons for concern. Um, there is so indoor air quality is can can be problematic and is an area that is understudied and that people don't know as much as they should. But we know that there are activities in the home, such as cooking or such as vacuum cleaning, depending on the vacuum cleaner you have, that can produce huge amount of particles of these aerosols. And these are not the, the virus containing aerosols in general, but, but they are more like pollution or dust type aerosols. And we also have pollution that can come from outside, from a forest fire, or if you live in, in LA or in a polluted place, and then can come indoors. For, for this type of aerosols, particle pollution, the same type of air cleaners that we are recommending now are very effective. They remove any particles, whether they have virus or whether they are from pollution or from dust. So I would recommend that people, um, especially if they have concerns about you know, respiratory issues or if they live in polluted areas or areas that are affected by wildfires, um, that they invest in one of these HEPA filter cleaners or, or one of these, um, the cheap version that I described with a fan and a filter. Um, a second concern, so that's about particles. And a, a particle, you know, if we think of a, of a molecule, of a chemical, a particle may have 100 million molecules stuck together in a, in a ball, right? It's still small enough to float in the air, but it's many molecules together. There is one other thing that's also of concern that what we call the gases. These are individual molecules in the air that are separated from each other, like nitrogen and oxygen, but there is others like um, siloxanes and chloramines, and there is different, different molecules indoors um, especially what we call VOCs or volatile organic compounds that can have uh, negative effects on health. And we and others have done many studies and actually the levels um, of these VOCs indoors are very high. 
are much higher than outdoors in most places. And in fact, the, the average house is almost as polluted in this sense as, as Mexico City in, in a bad day. So, and where do, do all these VOCs come from? Well, they come from, from wood is in, in, used in construction, from furniture and from a lot of the products we use. Cleaning products, deodorants, shampoos, from cooking. So I think there is, um, and we've, we've written, we had a paper in, in the journal Science a couple of years ago, kind of demonstrating this. Um, and I think there is a new awareness that needs to be created about this issue. And, and people really need to um, basically use as few products indoors as possible and try to select the ones that are the most benign. I think there is an overabundance of, of chemicals and, and it's actually increasing. Like now you buy uh, garbage bags or trash bags and they smell, they have, they have added a fragrance to it. And that's, that's a step in the wrong direction. Those, the reason why you smell, now you're adding a chemical that can do some more chemistry and create some more pollution in your home. So that's a, that's an so issue. Let me, that let me just ask you as a final question, Professor. You know, short of you <laughs> performing experiments and testing the air quality in folks' homes, uh, what is the best way for regular people to, to get an assessment of the air quality in their home? Is there anything that they can, that they can either purchase or um, have someone um, who is skilled evaluate the air quality in their home? Um, <clears throat> thankfully, we are, uh, there is actually a revolution in, in terms of low cost sensors that you can get. So I've been testing uh, you know, a sensor to measure CO2, which is a, a, a measure of ventilation. And I wrote a post in the internet about that. And I also have some other sensors that can measure radon and VOCs. And there is also cheap sensors that measure uh, particles. I mean, when I say cheap, these things are on the $100 range, right? The research versions are on the tens of thousands of dollar range. But, but now there's been all these sensors that are available that are kind of $100 or $200. So I think it's starting to become affordable to have this at home and especially to share them. You know, if, if still $200 is expensive, but maybe several families can buy one of them and, and measure one family every week or something like that, or, or as an association or as a school or something like that. And I think that's illuminating. You know, I've been doing that in our home and then I see what happens if I open the windows, what happens if we use these products, what happens if we cook. And then you really start to learn and to get feedback about the air quality in your own home. That other, otherwise is, it can be difficult to, to assess and, and it's not really something that there are a lot of companies that would do because, because it will be expensive and there is not a lot of demand, I, I guess, because it's expensive. Yeah, I wonder if uh, exterminators or other uh, um, services may, may have some uh, equipment that, that they um, employ um, when they're testing, but it sounds like you're directing people to the, the sensors that would be adequate and they could be found on Amazon or elsewhere? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm assuming I'm not allowed to give brands or, or anything, but but, uh, but yeah, there's uh, Amazon, there's many companies that are selling these. And of course, like on anything, there is there is better ones and worse ones, so you should do your research and, and um, you know, try to decide which ones, which ones work. But I, I've, I've tried a few and I had good luck and, you know, they, they work well and they connect with your smartphone and then you can see, you know, how different things were evolving. Uh, Jose Luis Jimenez, professor of chemistry at the University of Colorado Boulder. Thanks so much for joining me today and for your insights. Thank you for your time and thank you for having me.